to explain myself, I have to kind of explain my um, my disability. This is Steve from Toronto. So I have a, a condition called nystagmus. It's basically an involuntary eye movement where my, us, my muscles in my eyes move back and forth and it prevents my eyes from being able to focus. I say it's involuntary because I, I have no control over it. So growing up, when I would try to play video games, I, I, I would mostly watch my brother play because I just felt the time, this is when I didn't realize that my blindness was a, a hindrance to playing video games. I just thought that I was just bad at video games. Despite his handicap, Steve never gave up on games. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He put games right in the center of his life. In the next half hour, we're going to meet Steve and learn why he loves video games so much. And if you like The Matrix, the movies, the video games, then crank back the Barkalaja. You're not going to want to miss this. Welcome to Heavily Pixelated. I'm glad you're here. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. So it's probably best to first off describe what vision I actually have. This is Steve on his YouTube channel called Blind Gamer. Blind Gamer is, of course, a little sad, but it's also weirdly charming, too. It's tough to watch this guy who's legally blind try to play video games. Steve struggles on the channel. He's frustrated. And it's hard to watch. You can't help but feel a little sad for this guy. Steve's funny and he's witty. He's got this this voice, this incredible voice that when you hear it, it feels like warm honey is being poured into your ears. If you haven't heard it before, I have a condition called nystagmus. It's kind of nice. Voluntary eye movement, which essentially means my eyes move back and forth and I can't control it. I think it's really smart that Steve calls his YouTube channel Blind Gamer. Technically, it's an oxymoron. Calling yourself a blind gamer is the equivalent of calling yourself a deaf music lover or a wheelchair-bound gymnast. The words blind gamer don't usually go together. It was a mystery to me, and I had to find out more. I met Steve for the first time at the reference library in Toronto. Steve's a big dude. He's much taller than I was expecting him to be. He's kind of like a bear in a fairy tale who's very friendly. He was easy enough for me to find. He's the only giant pale man in a crowd holding his phone about one inch away from his eyeballs. The part about Steve that I always judged or that I felt uncomfortable with, and I feel like a big jerk for even admitting this, is the fact that he can play video games, but he still calls himself blind. You're not blind, buddy. You can play video games, you just have really bad eyesight. And I'm not alone. Lots of people judge Steve in exactly the same way. The most common negative comment that I get is, how can, how can you be blind? You can play video games. How are you able to see if you can play video games? How can you say you're blind when you're playing video I've games? I've always thought of blind as that melodramatic kind of movie representation of being blind, which is the person with the cane and the eyeglasses and the seeing eye dog, and they bump into everything, which I admit was really naive of me to think that. Blindness is more complicated and nuanced than that. When you think of blindness, you think 
wow, you're just in the dark. You can't see mm. anything, but you're a guy who can still see a little bit, and he can. He's he loves video games so yep. much that you, despite your handicap, you still insist on playing video games. Yeah, hundred percent. Sitting as close to the screen or monitor that you need to. Yep. Do people who are literally like in the dark and they mm -hmm. can't see anything? Are they? Do they? Are they pissed at you? Are they? They're like you call yourself. No, blind. you're not blind the way I'm blind. It's 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 funny. I I get more uh, people who have no disability that basically like accuse me of that as if I'm sort of taking advantage of sort of the blind moniker. And uh, I I think very early on when I started my YouTube channel, uh, someone even said it's like, oh yeah, you're using it as a marketing gimmick, and you're just hopping onto a trend. When I talk to people who have less vision than I do, yeah. it's, uh, it, the, no, they 100% they get it because the best way I've been able to say is that blindness is more of a spectrum than it is an on-off switch. It's very rare that someone will be like a Stevie Wonder where they can't see anything and they're completely in the dark. Uh, nine out of 10 people who say they are blind have at least some vision. Some can see shadows, some can, uh, it's just very blurry. Some is uh, like can see li uh, different lights and sort of different shapes. I'm kind of on the, uh, I'm on the side where I'm blessed that I don't need a cane or a guide dog to, uh, to get around. But there are definitely some barriers that I'm not able to do, like say drive or um, there's even certain things like, like even on the computer I can't do. And even like, I just don't have, there's a barrier that's always there that I always have to try to either adapt my vision to do it or, uh, or find a way to accommodate. Steve wears a pair of very stylish eyeglass frames. To describe the lenses as thick would be uh, an understatement. They're about as thick as a slab of bulletproof glass. There are blind people out there who could presumably play video games the way that Steve does, but they choose not to because it's just too goddamn hard for them. For Steve, there's no other option. He's going to do whatever he has to do to play them. Steve also has albinism. He's and albino. His skin is white and uh, his hair is a fine blonde. But honestly, his albinism really only enhances his fairy tale quality. So today with the help of some video editing software, I'm actually gonna literally show you what I see when I'm playing a video game. Steve produced a video on Blind Gamer describing for viewers what he sees when he plays a video game. It's great, honestly. I was so grateful to watch it. I'll put a link to the video on my website. What I was that I always felt like normal vision, 2020 vision, was something like you were wearing a pair of binoculars on your face and you can be able to see things at a distance and pretty close up. And I'm wearing the same pair of binoculars, but I'm looking at it through the other end. Always hard Even with glasses on, my vision is basically Basically, like 2200. That's my visual acuity. And even then, it's like there's certain things that are just really blurry. And so I would, I would enjoy watching my brother play because it was something that he was able to play, but I still was interested in, in, in the game itself. So I felt, oh, this is kind of a neat way to do it. So I kind of like watching a movie. The whole let's play genre, when that started to kind of get game popularity on YouTube, I was really interested in that because I was like, this is exactly what I had growing up. Growing up, I didn't play a lot of games, um, mainly because I didn't think that it was my disability. I just thought it was bad at video games, so I didn't play a lot of them. So there's a lot of games that people revere today uh, that I've never played before. Up until just recently, up until literally like this week, 
I never played Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm blind. And today I am playing The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past for the very first time time i just never bothered to play it most of the games i gravitated towards were stuff within like franchises so i played like quite a few batman games i played a lot of star trek games a lot of star wars games anything kind of like an established sort of world that i already knew because it was stuff that i was like that's what got me in it was i was more interested in the story aspect than i was the gameplay oh it's a triforce Again, growing up, I, I was a I was a very casual gamer at best, and w never once did I think that it was sort of it was my dis again it was my disability got in the way. It was just I was bad at video games. A link to the pleasures of the link to the past. Oh. oh. I grew up in uh, the Niagara area of Ontario, um, basically in a town called St. Catharines. Basically, I, I always like to say it's about 10, 15 minutes away from Niagara Falls itself. And uh, I always say it's like, you know, been there, done that, got the multiple t-shirts. Niagara Falls is a great, a great place to go to, but when you see it so many times as a kid, it kind of loses its luster to a certain degree. Growing up in the 80s, it was... Video games was kind of something that like I didn't really think about as, as sort of a hobby. I was I was the kid that I was I was going out with my best friend who lived two doors down from me, and we lived in kind of a not necessarily like a low income area, but it was sort of like in between lower income and middle class. I grew up in a family of five, so I'm the eldest of uh, three siblings. I have a brother that's about a year and a half younger than me, and then a sister who's about eight years younger than me. We all the same sort of passions. We loved sort of uh, uh, kind of the geek shows that we'd watch. Basically, a lot of Star Trek, yes. but we would mostly play outside and we would play sports and I wasn't that great at it, but it, like I spent more time outside than I ever did inside. I was told when I was six years old that actually my vision was going to get to the point that it, I would be completely blind. But I've been uh, blessed pretty much ever since I was three years old, I've had the same prescription. Because all my friends would play a lot of sports, I would generally have to sit um, on the sidelines um, or be the, the stereotypical equipment manager or uh, the scorekeeper. I always try to have a positive outlook on it, and and I tried to obviously like kind of do whatever I could to help support the team. I was always a team player, but I remember there were several times where I would see my friends they would play in these sort of championship games and uh i couldn't i couldn't participate with them i couldn't even celebrate with them i just felt like i, I was just i was just there and i was just but i was just in the way growing up with a disability and being blind i because it was always my normal i never even considered that it was my eyesight that was getting in the way. I knew that that, like to a certain degree, that that was the reason why I couldn't do most things. But I always just felt like that I sucked at baseball or I sucked at soccer or sucked at football. That hurt. Growing up, I had the same body as, like I looked relatively the same as my brother. He was able to do all those things, no problem. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't. Uh, like I couldn't throw up the ball in the air and hit it with a baseball bat and, and I would get so frustrated by it. It would felt like that I just sucked and I was just terrible. There'd be times I was made fun of and I was bullied a lot um, because of it and also because of uh, I do have sort of uh, albinism. 
that was what I was mostly picked on majority of the time than, than my vision. There'd be times I would be sitting up in front of the class because I had to, because it was the only way I can be able to see the, 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 the board. And I would be made fun of as like a teacher's pet. My retreat and my escape would be in reading. I used to read a lot as a kid. And I would sort of read these adventures and, uh, about sort of people that overcoming their challenges. And I would uh, see myself as uh, into one of those heroes. I would even write my own stories star- starring a version of myself but having these extraordinary abilities and powers. Growing up actually in a, in a uh, religious uh, household, there was a lot of sort of like Christian morals and beliefs that we had. And I, to this day, I am still a Christian. There was a time where I thought that because I, I looked way different than my family, I, no one in my family has albinism. And I always kind of felt like I was sort of outside of it or an outcast. I remember writing myself as like, I thought I was like an angel. I was kind of born on this earth and I didn't discover that I had sort of angelic powers until like I was like 12 or 13. I would sort of write on the way to, on the way to school because like, we used to walk like about a kilometer to school back and forth. And I remember just walking and just writing down uh, like uh, just all these sort of ideas for the story. I would go up against these bigger than life, supernatural demon like things that I guess took on the role of bullies. You were not going to be stopped by your eye condition. You were going to read, you were going, not only were you going to read, which is hard enough, mm-hmm. you're going to write as well. And you're not only were you going to write, you were going to write while walking down the street. <laughs> I know. It was so stupid how I think about it. Yeah. Like, how, like, why did I think I could do that? I get frustrated at times, of course. There are definitely good days and there are bad days. My sort of mentality in my life, like, and I've had, I've been like this ever since I, w- I was a kid, that I would always try to find the positive side of, of everything. Yeah. I would try to make jokes about, uh, like, not necessarily about my vision, but I'd just try to make people laugh. Like, that was the big thing for me. And, and, and if, if I could make people laugh, then to me, that, to me, that felt like, okay, they're happy. And that was what I always tried to do. Even, even, even in my own content I create, I try to be able to make people, like, smile or laugh. My dad actually, I remember, <laughs> I remember at one point, because uh, we used to have company over and, yeah. and, and, uh, and I would try to I'd be my goofy self. I would try to entertain and tell jokes. And then my dad at one point had to pull me to the side and he'd be like, okay, you're not funny. Don't try to tell these jokes. Stop. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I always felt like I wasn't funny. But Steve wasn't discouraged by his father's honest feedback. It was a one show on Chum FM CHFI uh, every Sunday night called Sunday Funnies. And they would constantly play stand-up comedians. And I would record those on cassette tape. I would listen to them on my Walkman, uh, ev- like re- on repeat, ev- like all day, every day. And I th- and that's kind of where I developed my humor. So I was like, all right, dad, you think I'm not funny? I, I'm going to prove you're wrong on this yeah. one. And I'm just going to, I'm going to develop a sense of humor and so much. Yeah. Of, yeah. Stubbornness. It was kind of a little bit of stubbornness for sure. Like, you think I'm not funny now? Well, I will show you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Steve what he wanted to be when he was growing up. Growing up, it was it was either a missionary or a uh, a preacher. 
My dad became part of the church ministry um, uh, early on as a kid. I think it was like when I was five years old, he started volunteering his time in our local church in the children's uh, departments. He became in charge of Sunday school. It's kind of where I sort of got a little bit of the performance gene in me because I would see my dad sort of perform. He wouldn't necessarily preach. He would always perform. And I kind of felt like I could do that. I can I can be up there and, and, and talking to kids. He would come up with skit ideas. And uh, sometimes I got to perform in them. He was a big proponent for wanting the kids to basically not be bored in church. I saw that as sort of like, I can do that. Like, I felt like I had that capability. And, and my dad, I think, saw that early on. And he says, like, I think you can do what I do or be a preacher. That's where your talent lies. And I never got it until much later in life. But I just always felt like that was that was fun. So I, the more times I got to do it was just was great for me. My entire elementary and high school, uh, that was the goal. I knew I was going to be either a missionary or a pastor. And missionary, I kind of felt like I love travel, but I don't know if I would ever want to. It wasn't like I was afraid of being. Actually, you know, I was. Honestly, I wasn't being afraid of like being in a third world country and not knowing what to do and, and not being able to see where I was going. I felt like, OK, I can I can become a pastor instead. When I graduated high school, my dad had got a, a became a pastor of a church. For about a year, I was always working towards basically Bible college. I actually was saving up to go to the same Bible college my dad went to. And then Steve learned about something that had happened at the college, something that made Steve more skeptical and more cynical. There was a scandal that had broken out of the president of the, of the Bible college where he, 10 years previous, had had an affair with one of the worship leaders and one of her kids was his. And that kind of exploded at that time. I just knew in, in, like in my heart that I was like, I just can't do this. Any dream I had about becoming a pastor or anything in ministry kind of stopped at that point. That's actually kind of where I got lost. My dad was, was struggling trying to be able to find a church that would bring him on. Having a family of five, that, that's a huge financial burden. And sometimes some churches are not able to afford that. I saw what the church was doing to my family. Our family kept going from church to church. It would either be the, the scandal of, of a fair, or there was one that one pastor had, get, had done this sort of like a donation drive. Uh, and he was, the whole thing was you're gonna get blessed by God by donating to the church. And my dad had found literally the equation of how much it would cost per member of congregation to be able to afford to, for him to be able to get a new car. And that was what the donation drive was for. Then another church would be like every single paycheck that my dad would get, it would get bounced. So I was more upset and, and just kind of like jaded of the church. I was never jaded with my like relationship with, with, with God. I was always fair, was very steadfast with that. But it was the church that kind of I felt like the institution of it was always letting my family down. My parents actually had built a bedroom down in in like in the rec room slot. It was it was the basement, but it was like they'd convert into a rec room. The rec room was my bedroom. Every single night, I would have to like pull out the pull out couch, and and that was my bed. It was so small, like it didn't have any windows. It was just like right beside the 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 laundry room. I didn't think that I would be that guy that would be living in my parents' basement, but. For the good chunk of like seven years, that's where I that's where I was. That's where I stayed. Did you, did you worry you would never get out? Oh, 100 percent. 
like it, it, I, I, I was really good at hiding that I was afraid of that. It was easier to say like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just like it, it's more financially like stable for me to stay at my parents for now. At that time, I did not know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe something in computer and technology because I love technology. I was what I was. I was always interested in computers. So my parents kind of thought, well, if you're interested in computers and you don't know what you want to do, why don't you just get a full time job? And then until you can figure out what you want to do, don't waste money on trying to go to college if you're not sure. I was working full time. Um, I was working at a call center, but it still was like, when am I going to get out of here? That's when it kind of started the really tough time in my life. The call center was okay at first, but Steve eventually began to wonder if he would ever be able to get out of this mire. It's, it's a high-tech sweatshop. It basically yeah. is what it is. Um, it's a revolving door of people all the time. They actually will train you for a full month at like full salary. Like after that month of training, then you go on the floor and then you're done. But I've, I knew people that would just go in for just that one month just to get the money. And then as soon as the training was done, they split. I couldn't understand why at first people would want to do that. But then as, as I kept going and I was just in it year after year and hearing every single sort of tech support call you can ever hear, their internet's down and they can't get online and they're calling you for tech support. You have a script that you have to go through, but then you also have to end the call as quickly as possible. So all the systems were set up to basically be against sort of the consumer. I always wanted to help people. That was sort of what drew me to it originally. Steve got tired of the way that the call center valued protocol more than customer satisfaction. I got written up by my supervisor because we had this ability where we can actually connect to people's computers and and fix certain things if, if, uh, if they had any issues. And so there's one uh, woman, she had said that her email um, icon kept disappearing. I knew how to fix it and how to be able to fix it so that she wouldn't keep calling back again. Because mm-hmm. I could see during her whole entire history that she would keep calling back. And so I took over her computer. I asked for permission and, and I showed her like how to do it. And I actually set it up for her and I got written up for that. I went beyond what was, what was allowed. At a certain point, like you just stopped caring. Like you really just stop caring about people, start stop caring about the job. There'd be days that I would just sort of, I'll fully admit, I just sort of let calls just go. Like I wouldn't even answer because I'm like, I do not want to answer this. I would barely see sunlight for a good chunk of about a year. My day would consist of, I would be at, I would go to work at five, get home for about midnight. I'd still be up to like three, four, sometimes five o'clock in the morning, I would just be sitting in my bedroom playing video games or fiddling on my computer or watching a movie or something. And then I would go to bed. I would wake up to about two, three o'clock in the afternoon and then I would have enough time to eat and then go straight to work. Two hours of sunlight was pretty much all, all I would get. And being in that bedroom with there was no windows, I could sleep till whenever because there was no sunlight kind of coming in and waking me up. It was basically a, such a solitary life. I felt so alone. Back on his YouTube channel, Steve is continuing his journey through a link to the past, and it's not going well. With the master sword in hand and all the pendants in the game collected, Steve moves on to the second set of dungeons. And it's in the second set of dungeons that Steve meets his match. Steve's not talking anymore. 
He pauses the game and he remains silent. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not getting better at this game. I keep losing so many lives. I keep re having to rewind so many times. I can't figure out any dungeon without having to look it up. I can't. I can't play this. I can't play this. That's it. I'm done. I can't play this game. I cannot play this game. I don't know what it is. I don't know. What, I don't know if it's just I, I. I just really suck at this, or if it's my disability getting in the way, or I am just not getting it. I. I, I honestly like. I get why the people like it. I mean, I understand that. It's 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 a it's it's a classic for a reason. But just because it's a classic doesn't mean it's good for me. I have honestly never seen somebody quit a Let's Play before. I mean, of course, people who are making Let's Plays do quit from time to time. People don't usually post them, so nobody ever sees their failures. It's embarrassing to not be able to, to do something, to solve a puzzle, to beat a boss, to get out of a dungeon. I really admire the fact that Steve's willing to share this moment that he makes this moment public. I think it shows a great strength to be honest about what we're capable of and what we're not. I, I wish that more people were honest about the things they can't do, their limitations as human beings. I think they're beautiful. You're a religious guy. Mm -hmm. uh, were you talking to God at this time? I felt like I was at, like I was angry at God. I was like, why? I had such great potential as a kid. I was told many times that I was creative, that I had so much, like I had so much talent, I had so much skill, and I didn't know what to do with it. It, it was a struggle. Like I felt like that uh, at the time, God wasn't listening. Even now, that's hard for me to say. I got angry during this time. I got really angry. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to do uh, at, at all. Um, it was just sort of felt like that there was a, it was there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And then, at one of his friend's twentieth birthday parties, Steve saw The Matrix for the very first time. I enjoyed the story more than the visuals. Because we would watch it on a 20-inch TV. Normally, my MO for watching TV is I would have to sit in front of it. But because how small the TV was, I couldn't because it would block from everyone, uh, from the other two guys from, yep. from watching it. A lot of the visual stuff from The Matrix that everyone loved, I didn't really 100% get because I didn't see it. So I was more interested in the story it's aspect. It's a good story. It's an amazing story. Even to this day, I literally will watch that franchise every single year. I know Kung Fu. Show me. I fell in love with it. This so eventually, when during this time when I was renting Similar a ton of movies and video games, I would constantly rent The Matrix yeah, kind of over rule. and over again. Then hit me, if you can. Boy, this is fighting Neo. 
and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I watched the sequels. I, was, I remember watching the sequels. It was the first time I actually went to the movie theater by myself to go watch them, and I was so excited. I still to this day think it's the Matrix is like the greatest franchise to me. It's like my favorite franchise uh, of all time. Back in 2005, Warner Brothers released The Matrix Online. So when they were coming up with a, a, an online version of the game, I was like, I, I need to play this. They tattered it as like, it's the continuation of the Matrix story, co-written by the Wachowskis. Whatever happens in this game is canon in the Matrix universe. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I need to get into this. It was everything that I loved about The Matrix. I can create my own self in this game. When I would write stories about myself as a kid, having these supernatural, like extraordinary abilities, like being able to like jump and leap tall buildings in a, in a single hyper jump was everything I loved about it. At that point, it was call center, come home, Matrix. Call, uh, go sleep, wake up, work, come home, Matrix. And it was just, that was the cycle. What I loved about the game was that they actually had the devs uh, play the characters from the movies. They would have Morpheus and Niobe and uh, and the Merovingian in the game, and they they would use the AOL instant message. Or they would use AIM, so you can add those characters as sort of like your fr in your friends list, and you would be notified as to when they would come online. And I remember one time Morpheus had come online, and I immediately messaged him and said, uh, "Morpheus, we would like my my clan will request your presence. Uh, uh, we would love to be able to hear your great words of of encouragement." It's sort of like that, talking to a celebrity. You never know if he's ever going to respond. Yeah. And then he responded to me, and he says, "Like I would love to be able to meet you and come to this uh, building in this uh, in this district of the mega city." all my clan and I was like we gotta go to this building Morpheus is gonna meet with us and, and I remember we, we actually set up in like a little semicircle around the door so that it, uh, when he walked in he would see uh, we would actually like we had this sort of command that we would sort of bow to Morpheus as he come in uh, into the room and we would have a full on conversation with Morpheus so Morpheus came into the room Morpheus came into the room It felt like that I was that I had stepped into the movie. Like it, it, I stepped even further into. Like I was immersed in that movie. Like I was part of that world now. And the fact that he acknowledged my character, a character named DJ Snowball, he would mention me by name and said that I had heard the call from DJ Snowball and I needed to be able to meet him and his and his clan. Like that game made me forget about a lot of the the, 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 the lack of direction that I had in my entire life. I found out that there was a radio station in the game. It was run by the community. It was a station called Radio Free Zion. It was run as if the the radio station was set up as a as a pirate radio broadcast within the Matrix. And they would have players be DJs. And they would say, hey, we're at this club in the mega city on this server. Come and hang out and we'll play music and we'll have a party. There'd be crowds that would show up in these, in these clubs. So we would just all dance. They would have contests. They would have promos. They would have interviews. Each DJ had a shift. And we even had this software that was at the time, like you would, in order to be able to purchase this broadcast software, it'd be like two, 300 bucks. Somehow they were able to get like multiple licenses of this software that they would give out to their DJs for free. And I remember hearing on there that they were looking for DJs. 
And I had never done anything like this in my entire life. I'd never been a DJ. I'd never, uh, I'd never did anything broadcast. I never even thought broadcasting was a thing for me to do. I used to perform. I used to act as a kid. Maybe I'll just sort of apply and see what happens. I applied. They liked me. They liked my voice. I remember my first shift on air ever was for this big, wide, like server-wide party. And I was the first person uh, scheduled. The first time I was streaming for about three to 5,000 people. And I fell in love with it. This is exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to get into broadcasting. I wanted to be that announcer, be that host, be that DJ that people can like can talk to and feel like they can communicate with while we just have fun. It was such a like a, a, a massive thrill to be a part of that. And I became sort of a semi-celebrity within the game that when they even ended the beta servers, they did this sort of like end of world event where the matrix kind of was shutting down and it was kind of folding in on itself. The station kind of blew up even further and it's sort of becoming like I was added on as sort of like the promotions director and sort of the and I was a producer because that's how I learned how to edit audio. And, and uh, I even had someone who volunteered because he used to be a producer at a radio station. He's like, I've got all this archive. I've got all this experience. Let me teach you. And he taught me how to edit audio. I was coming up with a whole bunch of just promos and just I station IDs. And I started learning the radio business just based off of a video game. It's so funny though because your your actual life, your real life, is it's all a series of ambiguities mm -hmm. and disappointments. You're disappointed in where you're living. You feel yep. like a failure. You're you know you're working a job you have no investment in, mm -hmm. uh, and then you go to this world that's full of mystery, mm -hmm. where you can be revered as a DJ of all things, and five thousand people can listen to the stuff that you're, you're yeah. playing and. You have, like, you have agency, you have power. Yeah, it was the first time I kind of, like, I felt... Look how happy you are. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, it was it was one of the best, like, times in my life. Uh, I mean, I've every, every, like, every moment since then has been absolutely amazing. I, and I, but I would not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for that particular time in my life. I've been working in radio for 10 years. Uh, I've been in a host of many different things, including my own projects like the Blind Gamer series on YouTube. And I've just been making content ever since. And that's now going on 14, 15 years. And so I credit the Matrix Online for basically saving my life. Nathan, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? This is Nathan Hendrickson. He's one of the directors for 2005's The Matrix Online. It is a real honor to meet you myself and to introduce you to Steve Saylor, uh, who's also on the line here. Uh, yeah, so um, I do a series called Blind Gamer, where essentially, yes, I am, I'm blind. And it's more of a Let's Play kind of channel, where essentially it, it's more funny to watch me fail at video games than it is for me to actually do well. And uh, <laughs> I've been kind of like an accessibility advocate within uh, the video game industry over the past couple of years. And I've been able to help AAA studios add accessibility into their games. Uh, okay. Above all, 
I am a giant Matrix Online fan. That, that is incredible, and I appreciate uh, that. So that game came at a, at a period of time in my life where essentially I didn't know what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was kind of living at home. I don't know if you remember the radio station that was started up in the community, Radio Free Zion. I, absolutely, I do. Okay, well, uh, I was one of the uh, the DJs uh, that uh, was <laughs> on that station. Uh, I, I literally did not know what I was doing. I applied. They seemed to like my voice enough. I remember streaming for the first time on, uh, I believe it was the recursion server, and it was at Club Dionysus. I, yeah. I was streaming for like two to 3,000 people. It was one of uh, the coolest experiences I ever had. It basically launched me into thinking I wanted to get into broadcasting. If it wasn't for that game, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And I've been working in radio for the past 12 years. It was because of that game that gave me my career, gave me a purpose and what I'm doing with my life. I mean, that's great, and and that's it makes me so happy to hear. We put we put a tremendous amount of effort into that game, but we've never we never did a, an MMO before. We didn't know. I mean, we all played MMOs. We 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 understood them, but we didn't know even how to make one. And so we sort of took that on because of the love of the franchise. And the Wachowskis were great. They gave us a lot of great advice on on how to build it and the things that they were expecting. Some strange things like you know you can't have anything alive, no trees that were alive. But, uh, and we'd point to the movie and we'd be in. Like, hey, there's a tree way in the background that has leaves on it. We're like, oh, we just couldn't take it out. And so it's, it was uh, sort of interesting to sort of work through their, you know, how they, they felt this world uh, should be lived in. Part of what I did is I designed the world, but it was meant to be generic in nature, you know, sort of like it was built by a computer. We had to sort of develop new ways to move the, uh, the play around the world, not just using story, but, you know, creating things like the monuments uh, in each one of the zones. Yes. Uh, so each you know, particular area had a had a unique element because yep. the, obviously the initial concern was that everything kind of looked the same. That you know we need to tell the story to move the player around. Um, yeah, I remember. I think when we, our clan was trying to be able to find the Metacortex building, uh, yeah, we we got we got killed a lot by agents for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to make sure if you went to downtown that you were going to get destroyed early on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was. It was. I love that. It was one of those kind of sad days. We we put a lot into it, and we and we cared a lot. That's one of the things that just happens in games occasionally, where you you throw it out there, and and uh, it doesn't quite stick. It's always great to hear that you know it's it's affected some people, and that it meant something. You know, to me, that's you know, that means a lot. You know, people lived in it till the day it closed down. It kind of makes me sad that it you know it didn't live that long. I basically just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for for making that game. That game changed my life. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for that game. Thanks for the kind words. It means a lot, and I'll pass it on. We have a few guys still here at Monolith that worked on that, and um, they'd love to hear that as well. So thank you so much, and I'm I'm really happy that that, uh, it, uh, it affected your life in a very positive way. That means a lot to me. Thanks today to Steve Saylor. You can find Steve on YouTube. He's Blind Gamer. Or you can find him on Twitter. He's at Steve Saylor, S-A-Y-L-O-R. Thanks also to Nathan Hendrickson from Monolith Studios. Nathan was very sweet to make time in his workday for myself and for Steve. The Matrix Online, of course, you can't really play anymore, not in a traditional sense. But you can play some of Nathan's other games, including Middle Earth Shadow of War, Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, 
the Lord of the Rings War in the North, and Fear 2. See, I told you guys it was a good resume. Music in today's episode provided by the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Tracks include Upbeat by John Luke Heffernan, Ever Now by Eugenie Taylor, Arise by Pottington Bear, Under an Ending Sun by Krakatoa, and finally, Sickle Veroni by the Blue Dot Sessions. All music can be found on the freemusicarchive.org. This week's episode is brought to you by V-Blank Entertainment. They are the makers of Retro City Rampage and Shakedown Hawaii. No one creates celebrations of 8-bit and 16-bit experiences the way that V-Blank does. Go to their website, vblank.com, to find out more. Also, we've got a Patreon. Now go to patreon.com backslash heavily pixelated if you'd like to contribute. We've got some new contributors this week who we need to thank, including Jason Alcock. Terry McGurra, Greg Fear, John Vals, Glenn Cole, and a slight correction from last time I mispronounced Jules Michaud's name, so sorry about that, Jules. Thank you, patrons. I hope you're proud of the work that you are building and creating because you guys are all part of this now. The show makes sense because of producer Sarah Deacons, and it sounds so great because of audio specialist Stephen Nikolic. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Heavily Pixelated, Until then, I'm Scott C. Jones. He would mention me by name and said that I had heard the call from DJ Snowball and I needed to be able to meet him and his his clan.